questions you might have about your practice or meditation in general. Yeah. So what had been going on with my practice previously is that I was noticing more and more that I'm not my feelings, I'm not my thoughts, and these things occur. And having noticed how much I am not those things, my idea was, at least the idea that was in my head that I happened to notice, was that because I'm now noticing these are not mine, they would lessen. This was my idea. And I like this idea, and it has occurred some, but not to the extent that, that I would like. And, and so, of course, I'm noticing that, too. I'm noticing the satisfaction, and I'm noticing yeah. this idea that something is wrong, and, and so on and so forth. The only thing to do about it that has occurred to me is to just be as present as I can be. Just be as not just in the meditation practice, but in my life. And so that seems to me to be a very good idea. So that's yes. where I am right now. Um, and, and yet, there is the voice that says, not good enough, not good enough. So I'm noticing that voice, but at the same time, I'm wondering if you can give me any feedback about how to continue to proceed. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, you, you already stated the most important part of it, which is to continue to be mindful of what's happening, both while you meditate and in the rest of your life. And the more continuously you can be aware of what's happening in your mind and your mind's reaction, then the better. So, uh, you said that you had been noticing your feelings and, and noticing that uh, you were not those feelings. The feelings were not you. And that's, that's very important. The most important thing about recognizing that they're not you is having that objective understanding that they are arising out of your mind, that they're created uh, by your mind, uh, by some part of your mind, actually. Because j just as you are not your feelings, you, your mind is not one thing. Mm -hmm. So, by seeing that you are not your feelings, then you begin to see them as they really are, which are uh, phenomena created and constructed through the activity of the mind. And that the, whatever the reasons are for the mind creating the particular feelings you're experiencing at this particular time, it's basically because uh, your mind has been programmed to do that by your past experiences and your past attitudes. And the part of your mind that's producing those feelings is continuing to do that, not necessarily uh, on the basis of any kind of information of whether they're helpful or unhelpful to do that. It's just, a, you know, it's just the way your mind does it. So you said, you were, I think, if I understood you correctly, a little bit surprised that by being so aware that you were not, you were not these feelings and these thoughts, etc., that they still kept coming. But you see, there's no, 
necessary reason why they would stop coming just because you identified them as not self. What will make the difference is the uh, well. It's very important that you don't identify with them as self because that weakens the tendency for uh, especially emotions, mental states of irritation or anger or any sort of unwholesome mental state. That means that whenever they arise in the future, they'll be less likely to capture you with this uh, this thought that I am this feeling. So that's really good. That I, I think that I think you have experienced that because you said you were finding that you were doing it more and more consistently. Right? So that's victory in regard to that. By recognizing that you are not your feelings, the feelings lose their power to make you make the mistake of identifying with your feelings. And you enter into more and more of an objective relationship with your feelings. Which, of course, makes it a lot easier not to engage in unwholesome uh, speech or action as a result of your feelings as well. So the next part of it is that through your mindful awareness that that the ways in which the particular emotions you're experiencing are not beneficial to you and not beneficial to others and, and that becomes more and more apparent through your mindfulness. That is what is going to uh, decrease their likelihood of reoccurrence. So if you can think of it as a part of your mind producing these emotions in response to certain kinds of situations and producing the impulses to certain kinds of actions as a result of that hasn't been getting the feedback prior to this. So it just keeps on repeating the same things. Now through mindful awareness, what you should be doing is providing the feedback to those deeper and unconscious mental processes that in fact the, the results of their functioning in the way they are, are not beneficial. And so they'll stop. They'll cease to do that. This is what we're really doing when we're, when we're practicing mindfulness. And so um, the first step in practicing mindfulness is you have to learn to remember to be mindful which is to remember to pay attention to what's actually going on in your mind and in the present moment. But it does it does go beyond that, and this, you know, this can and will happen by itself, but it's helpful if you know where you're going with it. And uh, and, and so the, the Buddha himself described essentially what we're doing when we watch unwholesome mental states that arise. He said that when he was still a bodhisattva, when he was still unenlightened, it occurred to him that he could divide his thoughts into two kinds, those that were wholesome and those that were unwholesome. And then whenever an unwholesome thought would arise, he would examine it with mindfulness until 
the understanding came, and this uh, is as close as I can remember the words of the sutra and how he describes it, until the understanding came that this was that this thought was an affliction to himself, which he would see by the way it made him feel physically, the way it made him feel mentally, psychologically, uh, the disturbance that it created to him. So he would see that this thought was an affliction to himself, that it was an affliction to others. He saw that uh, that when that certain thoughts and mental states would result in actions on his part, which contributed to the unhappiness uh, and suffering of others, and to the affliction of both. Uh, and further, his mindfulness caused him to understand that this thought or this mental state. Was, did not bring him closer to nirvana, but brought him farther away from it. And I, he, he made a very similar description of wholesome thoughts, that when a wholesome thought arose, that through being mindful, he would recognize that this wholesome thought or wholesome mental state was a benefit to him. Hello. Good to see you. Hello. Hello. Ah, <laughs> oh, I love seeing all of you here. Every every time somebody else comes in. <laughs> anyway, he said with regard to the wholesome thoughts and, and, and mental states that arose, that he examined with mindfulness until the understanding arose that this was beneficial to him. It was beneficial to others, and it was beneficial to both, and that it did bring him closer to nirvana rather than taking him farther away from it. And so in, in this particular sutra, he's describing essentially how mindfulness works. You know, So it doesn't just stop with noticing that a particular mental state is arising. It's continuing to be mindful. How does it, how does it make me feel in my body? What are the uh, the affect of pleasantness and unpleasantness of the mind that arises. What kind of mental state does it create? What kind of other thoughts and impulses does it generate? And what are the consequences of those? So to practice mindfulness properly, you stay, you stay with it. You don't just, aha, okay, that's what's happening, and then try to leave it behind. You continue to investigate. So, and that's how it's working. Is the, the light of consciousness, of conscious awareness, shining clearly upon the events that are taking place uh, in your mind, in your body, and in your interactions with the world. So that, that illuminating effect of conscious awareness is providing the feedback to these deeper mental processes as to what the outcome is of them functioning in the way that they are by producing these kinds of, of mental states and emotions. And so that is how it leads us towards being free of them. Okay, so does that answer your question, what to do next, uh, how to continue? Well, it sounds like I should do exactly what I have been doing and just continue. Just continue, <laughs> that's right, yes, that's right. It is easy to 
misinterpret what I just said and what the Buddha said to think that you're supposed to analyze what you see in these terms. But that will actually be detrimental to the process. What you want to do is just have as clear and direct awareness as you can. So you're actually seeing the effect that it has on you, seeing the effect that it has on others. You don't need to analyze it, and you don't need to judge it, because you know, uh, in terms of most of these unwholesome emotions, if you start to analyze, what tends to happen is your analysis will turn your negative feelings away from an external object and then towards yourself. You know, so you'll get angry at yourself for getting angry at somebody else, or you'll judge yourself for judging somebody else, or you'll feel, you know, whatever the unwholesome emotions happen to be. If, if it has to, to do with desire, you'll just convert your uh, desire for some sense pleasure or for some material object to this intense desire to be different from the way you are. And so at that superficial level where you have these kind of thoughts, that's actually going to get, a, get in the way. It's going to interfere with the effect that you want to have. You just want to see these truths as they are and let that effect trickle down into the deepest layers of, of your consciousness, or of your unconsciousness, I should say. Yeah? Um, you spoke about beneficial uh, states of mind to test as well as beneficial to you or to others. What is, for example, when, when you are getting upset about uh, social injustice, for example, and it's in the moment not beneficial for you, you feel that you react physically yeah. and emotionally very strongly, but also it propels you maybe into a positive uh, action with good intention behind. So how do you deal then with that conflict? Okay. The thing that, okay, to repeat that question, all right. So, if you get upset about a social injustice, you can see that being upset is not beneficial to you. But it seems that the, that upsetness uh, is what makes you able to do something, okay? And, well, First of all, the reason that we have these emotional reactions is entirely to make us take some kind of, of action as a result of them, right? So when we see something and desire it, or when we experience a pain and we have aversion to it, then arises the motive out of that, out of the aversion or out of the desire, arises the motivation to perform some kind of action to obtain the object of the desire or to eliminate the object of aversion. That's exactly what their purpose is and how they function. And for, for many organisms other than human beings, and perhaps for some human beings who are not quite so well developed, this may be the only thing that will uh, propel them into taking the kind of action that's necessary. But 
in your question, there is uh, the concern, the fear that, well, if I don't have craving, then I can't survive. I won't do the things that are necessary. I won't take appropriate action to right social wrongs. But you see, if you, if you feel, if you think about this, if it were true that not becoming upset about social injustice would lead to you not being uh, willing or able or interested in doing something about social injustice, if that were true, then it would follow that not being upset about things that caused you some kind of pain or suffering, or not having a desire for, for things, would keep you from surviving and functioning properly, because without, without the desire and the aversion, why would you do anything? You see, so this was, yeah, you agree, that's, that's the concern. This comes up over and over again because we are so used to being compelled to, in all of our actions, by desire and aversion, that there comes the concern that, well, without desire and aversion, without craving, I, I won't do anything. I'll just... Okay, so... Um, what logical evidence can I give you that that won't happen. Uh, well, first of all, this is not logical evidence, it's just anecdotal. But if you look at the Buddha, he spent 45 years teaching, which was one of the most powerful ways that he could bring about social change. And the effects of his actions are still resonating right through the present day. So clearly his being free of craving did not render him incapable of taking action. And if we look at other enlightened beings, arhats, that uh, throughout history, we find rather than them being inactive, we find them being very active and highly effective in the world. And if we take, for example, uh, the present Dalai Lama as as uh, one example of that. Uh, he, he exerts a lot of effort and has had a lot of positive influence uh, in many different ways throughout the world. So it's not that, uh, in, in his case, it's not that the success in his practice has rendered him incapable of of taking action. Because, see, that's the difference between ourselves and, say, uh, a lizard or some simpler form of life who really largely relies on these built-in emotional reactions to act when it's necessary to act. That uh, we have our native intelligence uh, to guide us. And even that would allow us to uh, avoid things that were harmful to our own person and to, to meet the needs of our own person. But the other thing that happens as you grow 
in, as, as your spiritual development proceeds, is that you also acquire more wisdom and more compassion. The compassion provides the same kind of motivation that the upset now does. And the wisdom provides the discernment as to how best to take action. The thing is that when we're motivated by upset, very often we'll take vigorous action, sometimes violent action, but often inappropriate action. Good question, though. Thank you. Uh, welcome to those beloved people who have come in while I was talking. Even those sitting hiding in the doorwell. Oh, and those sitting hiding behind Nancy. <laughs> it's good to see you all. I think we need some lights on in here, if you wouldn't mind, Judy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Any other questions about practice? These are really, like the last two questions, these two questions are really good in terms of practice. Yes. To cultivate more wholesome thoughts. More what? Wholesome thoughts. Open? Wholesome. Wholesome, wholesome thoughts, yes. To cultivate more wholesome thoughts. Yeah. What is your take on the whole practice of Repeating positive affirmations. Uh, well, okay. So, in, as the question was, we, we have some wonderful people who are transcribing these talks now, and so I need to remember to repeat the question so that uh, so that that part of it gets transcribed. So the question was that uh, with regard to cultivating wholesome thoughts, what do I think about positive affirmations? Well, affirmations do work. The things that you repeat, the things that you repeatedly hear, whether you hear them from somebody else or whether you hear them from yourself, um, do have an effect. They are assimilated to some degree or another uh, into the mental formations that subsequently influence your uh, your actions and reactions. And so affirmations do have uh, a power. Um, many of the kinds of affirmation practices that I've heard about uh, are usually intended to uh, make a person happier in a worldly sense. So often those affirmations, they, they are very strongly uh, tainted by desire and aversion. You want things not to happen to you that you don't like, and you want, you want to be the kind of person or be successful or get rich or you know, any of the other kind of things that we want. So they're t already tainted by desire and aversion. But 
to use affirmations as a method for cultivating wholesome thoughts definitely is a good idea. Uh, and essentially, that's what we do when we practice uh, any of the many different kinds of loving-kindness meditation, because we, we are creating affirmations uh, for the benefit of other beings, which are very wholesome. And of course, the interesting thing about that is the first and primary effect of these affirmations is actually on ourselves, even, even though we're directing them towards other beings. But they, they do have the desired kind of effect on our actions and, and reactions. And two more wonderful people are in here. So there's two, there's three seats here up in the front if you uh, want to sit up here, or there's chairs back there. Uh, for example, in, in the one that we frequently do here, may all beings be free from suffering, may all beings be free from ill will, may all beings be filled with love and kindness, and may all beings be happy. So this is an affirmation. And the more often you repeat it, the more strongly your, your mind is going to be oriented towards uh, the fulfillment of those affirmations. So, may all beings be free from suffering becomes transformed, or you could even extend the affirmation to make it make the transformation happen quick, more quickly. But the transformation of repeating, may all beings be free from suffering, is may all beings be free from suffering and may I do whatever I can to help make it so. So if you keep holding that wish, that all beings be free from suffering, and then you find yourself in a situation with somebody else who is suffering and there's something you can do to help them, you are going to be very strongly predisposed to, to act and react out of that, the same thing with the others. But any form of loving-kindness meditation is a cultivation of the wholesome mental states of loving-kindness, compassion, and understanding. And uh, in terms of the effects that it has on you, a uh, very interesting thing we were just talking earlier about uh, research studies on the effects on the brain waves of meditators and uh, the largest effects that they see in the electroencephalograms, the brain waves of meditators who spent a long time doing meditation techniques. The strongest effect that they see is people that are doing various kinds of love and kindness meditation. And uh, what's interesting in, in terms of the parts of the brain that are more active and the parts of the brain that are less active in somebody that's been doing this kind of meditation is those brain centers that are normally more active, the more happy a person is, are like off the chart active. And those brain centers that are normally most active when a person is sad, depressed, unhappy have, have a greatly reduced level of activity. So you see that practicing loving-kindness has a, a beneficial effect on you in addition to uh, steering your, your whole tendency of behavior, action, and reaction in a positive and wholesome direction. So. Uh, Affirmations used in that way are 
are very good, very beneficial. Thank you. Welcome.